has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You're not getting any sound? I'm on. John's getting it. As I stated in the last hour, bear with us this morning. We're we're working on this new process for downloading, capturing the Bible classes and downloading them onto the Internet. So, okay. I won't mention Three Stooges, Keystone Cops, anything like that. Where was I? I lost my train of thought. Let's begin with A word of prayer, make sure that we are indeed in fellowship, ready to study God's Word. We will have a few moments of silent prayer for confession of sin if necessary. Make sure we're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, ready to learn God's Word. Let's begin in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have this morning to come together and to fellowship around the teaching of your word. As we continue our study in the Gospel of John and as we study about our Lord and the confrontations he faced during his time on the earth, during the Incarnation, Father, we see so many principles there that we can apply in our own lives. We pray that under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we will have the objectivity to see how these things apply to our own lives and respond in the appropriate manner. Now, Father, we pray that you would guide and direct us as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to John chapter 7. The seventh chapter of John, we are down to verse 11. John chapter 7, verse starting in verse 11. Now, in this section of John, going back to the fifth chapter, we're seeing a series of public confrontations between our Lord and the religious leaders in Israel, as well as the people. First of all, in John chapter 5, Jesus went to Jerusalem at an unnamed feast, and he healed a man on the Sabbath, which raised the ire of the Pharisees, and there was a confrontation, and there we saw and analyzed the Son of God discourse. Then in chapter 6, Jesus was back in Galilee. We saw the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, the miracle of his walking on the water, which was followed by the bread of life discourse as he challenged the multitudes to believe on him and accept him as the Messiah. And we saw that at the beginning of the chapter, the multitudes were with him. By the end of the chapter, they had left, and there were only the 12 disciples who continued to stay. And now we have another confrontation, the third confrontation, 
which is found from the 7th chapter through the 10th chapter. Jesus is in his third trip to Jerusalem. He is no longer popular with the masses. In fact, he has now somewhat of a notorious reputation. Everybody's wondering who he is, where he is, what he's teaching, and what will happen when the Pharisees finally carry out their death threats. So he makes his way to Jerusalem in somewhat of of secrecy. But before we get into this passage and see how what he does relates to the Feast of the Tabernacles, we need to go back and look at a couple of Old Testament passages. So turn with me to Zechariah 14.16. Zechariah 14.16. This is the second to last book in the Old Testament. Just before the last prophet in the Old Testament... Some say the Italian prophet, Malachi. (laughs) Zechariah, chapter 14, verse 16. Remember, this is the Feast of Tabernacles. And so when the Jews come together at the Feast of Tabernacles, this is a pilgrimage feast. So that means there are tens of thousands of of adult Jewish males who have come from all over the Roman Empire, from the Parthian Empire, from wherever they lived, scattered in the Diaspora. They have come back to Jerusalem for this important feast. And so on their mind would be the Old Testament context for the Feast of Tabernacles as well as certain Old Testament passages, one of which would be Zechariah 14, verse 16. We read here, Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went, up, went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Now, this is a prophetic passage, a prophetic context, and it refers to the situation in the millennium, that all the nations will go up annually to Jerusalem in order to celebrate the Feast of Booths. There are a couple of references here when it says the Lord of hosts. This literally is Yahweh, the covenant name of God, emphasizing his relationship with Israel. And the term for hosts is the Hebrew word sabaoth, which means armies. Worship the king, the Lord, Yahweh of the armies. So we see here that the Feast of Tabernacles figures prominently in millennial expectations. So when they're coming to Jerusalem... To celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles, what's on their mind is the coming of the King, the coming of the Messiah who will give them political victory and restore to the nation a glory even greater than that of David and Solomon. So it is a very patriotic time. It is a time of national and ethnic pride. Now, turn over just two or three pages to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. This is a prophecy that has its primary reference to John the Baptist, but also has expectations related to the Messiah and his coming. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of the armies. So here... The Lord of the armies is a reference to God the Father, 
the first person of the Trinity because he is referring to another person, another Lord, Adonai, who will suddenly come to his temple. That's the phrase we want to focus on. He will suddenly come to his temple. So this concept has been built into the Jewish messianic expectations. They are looking for a Messiah who will suddenly appear. In their thinking, by the time of the first advent, the rabbis had taught that the Messiah would just sort of supernaturally appear without genealogy, without background, without personal history. He would just suddenly appear upon the scene. Remember that because that is the context, the Old Testament context for understanding the events that are going to transpire in Jerusalem. Now let's go back to our passage in John chapter 7 and review just a little bit what has taken place. In the first two verses, John sets for us the context. He gives us the setting. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea. Why? Because the Jews were seeking to kill him. This goes back to John chapter 5, and after his healing of the cripple at the pool of Bethesda, the religious leaders, that's what the term Jews refers to, not all Jews, because everybody that we're talking about in the passage is Jewish. It's specifically a term for the religious leaders, for the Pharisees, the Sadducees, which comprise the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews. And they had already determined that they were going to assassinate Jesus because he was upsetting their political situation. Too many people were following him. And he was antagonistic to their legalistic policies. So we have the setting in verses 1 and 2. And then from verse 3 and following, we see the antagonism that Jesus had even in his own family. And we see that none of them are believers. In fact, they're operating on pure human viewpoint expectations of religion, of ritual, of the Messiah, and of how the Messiah or a religious leader ought to operate. And they in a somewhat sarcastic or facetious manner, tell Jesus that he ought to be going down to Judea with everybody else because if you really want people to follow you, aren't you going to go out into public and do what everybody else does so that you can have a big crowd like everybody else? And what we see here is that the world, and by that I mean both unbelievers and carnal Christians who don't have a clue as to what the Scriptures teach, are always caught up in trying to compare Christianity with other organizations and other institutions and other methodologies. They want to make uh, uh, the church a social organization, a political organization, some kind of lonely hearts club or a civic organization. And they think that the church operates on principles like all other organizations. And the bottom line problem is that they start thinking that the principles that govern a church are the principles that govern a business. And you see people who want to utilize salesmanship techniques in certain business, but whatever the latest fad is in business, sooner or later, after three or four years, makes its way into the church. So you men who are out there going to various uh, manage, managerial, ladies too, managerial management things, whatever the latest thing is today, somebody's going to spiritualize that and try to introduce that into the church and you'll find seminary courses on it in another couple of years. And the problem is that the church is a unique organization in history. 
The church is an organism. It is the body of Christ, and it operates specifically and exclusively on principles related to the dynamics of the Holy Spirit and the dynamics of the spiritual life. And even though there might be some overlap and some parallels, if we start trying to run the church or evangelism or anything like that on the basis of human viewpoint, salesmanship techniques, then we're going to fall apart. And you can go out and in the energy of the flesh, on the basis of all kinds of human viewpoint gimmicks, you can have a church of 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 people. I mean, just look around. It's happening all over the country. But there's no doctrine there. There's no orientation to grace. There's no understanding of truth. There's no teaching. You can go to those churches three, four, five, six years, and you don't know any more about the Bible at the end of that time than you did at the beginning. But everybody has a wonderful time. They enjoy tremendous entertainment. And everybody goes away feeling so much better about themselves and about God. But that's not spirituality, and it has nothing to do with biblical Christianity. And yet we are so uh, results-oriented in our culture that we think that you have to get, if you have the numbers and you have all of this activity, then certainly it must be a product of the Holy Spirit. But that's not what we find anywhere in the Scriptures. And Jesus refuses to compromise with the human viewpoint assumptions of his family. They're coming to him with their agenda and saying, be like everybody else. You want to be a prophet, go act like all the other prophets and go to Jerusalem. And he refuses to compromise and he stays behind. Now, one of the reasons he stays behind is because Jesus is not a fool. Jesus has an agenda. He is operating on God's plan and purpose for his life. And he knows that his appearance in Jerusalem at the wrong time could escalate things and put the plan in jeopardy. So he is going to remain in control of his uh, schedule and his plan. He knows that there is a hostile environment awaiting him in Jerusalem, and he takes the proper precautions necessary to ensure that the Father's plan is not going to be prematurely interrupted. We see from this that Jesus isn't naive, Neither is he a fatalist. He doesn't just sit back and say, well, whatever will happen, will happen. He takes the proper precautions. And last time we saw that he even went so far as to arm the disciples the night before he went to the cross so that if any illegitimate group tried to attack them or to arrest him, then they would be armed and they could defend themselves. But when the correct group came to arrest him, he did not respond with violence or did not call upon them to protect him. Now, that brings us down to verse 10, where we ended last time, where we read, But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as it were, in secret. Now, back in verse 8, Jesus told his brothers, Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast, because my time has not yet fully come. And the implication is not that he's telling them, I'm not going to go. You guys go ahead. He's saying, my time hasn't come. I'm not going yet. That's the uh, implication there. If he were saying, I'm not going, and then he went, he would be lying and deceptive. Jesus is simply saying, my not time has not yet come. You go ahead. And then after they went, he went up in secret. He is not making a show of it. He doesn't want to precipitate events. 
So he waited till everybody else had gone. This was a week-long festival. So people went to Jerusalem at the beginning of it. And he waited. Once the roads cleared out, once the traffic jams were gone, once all the um, campgrounds had vacated all of their, their tents and all of their occupants, then Jesus and his disciples took their time walking up to Jerusalem. The reason it says up to Jerusalem is because of elevation. In uh, Aramaic idiom, you went up and down not in relationship to north and south, but in relation to uh, elevation. So no matter where you were, if you were up here as they were in Galilee and you traveled south, you were going up because you were going to increase in elevation when you went to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is rather high. And so everybody, no matter from which direction you, you came, you always go up to Jerusalem. So he goes up to Jerusalem somewhat secretly, incognito. He doesn't make a display of his presence or challenge anyone. Now we read then in verse 11, the Jews, therefore, the religious leaders, were seeking him. It's an imperfect tense of zeteo, which means that the Jewish leaders were continually seeking him. This is their day in, day out, all day long. They've got their spies out in the crowd looking for Jesus. He is being hunted. He is uh, he's wanted. The Jewish leaders continually sought him. They're sending out agents into the mob. And remember, this is a huge crowd. Some people estimate that during these pilgrimage feasts, the population of Jerusalem expanded to as many as 150 to 200,000 people. So it's a huge crowd, and you find the temple precincts are packed shoulder to shoulder with people. Here's a diagram of the, the whole temple complex. Here we have the temple itself, and out here is the outer, outer courtyard, which was referred to as Solomon's Porch. And so it was packed with people, and you have agents from the Jewish leaders moving among the people, listening to them, trying to discover if anybody knows his whereabouts, seeking, listening, trying to find out if they know something, trying to find out if they've been contaminated by his teachings, trying to find out what his influence is, who's following Jesus, who might be hiding him, who might be one of his disciples. And the picture we see in this entire passage is an atmosphere of oppressive fear. The people are afraid of the leadership, so they're not wanting to come out in the open and even talk about him, whether they agreed with him or not. They are uh, keeping very quiet about his presence because they don't know whether the... They know the leaders are antagonistic, but they don't know that a final decision has been made, and they're afraid that if they come out and somebody thinks they're following Jesus, that if Jesus is arrested, that they would be arrested as well. So there's a heavy atmosphere of fear. And we read in verse 12, And there was much grumbling, this means arguing, disputation, among the multitudes. The people have him on their lips. What's Jesus doing? Did you hear what happened last spring when he was up there in Galilee, the miracles? And he said that we have to eat his body and drink his blood. What do you think he meant by that? And and how can he call upon us to violate the law like that? What do you think about him? Do you think he's a prophet? Do you think he's the Messiah? Is he is he a good man or is he just a just a deceiver? And we're told here in verse 12 that you have two positions. 
One is that he is a good man, and the, the Greek word there for a good man is the Greek word agathos. Different words, agathos, kalos is another synonym for good, and agathos, A-G-A-T-H-O-S, means good of intrinsic value. So it is a recognition not simply that he's a nice guy, not simply that he's a good moral teacher. These are the ones who recognize that Jesus is indeed who he claims to be, the Messiah. And they are in the minority. This is indicated in the Greek, the way it expresses this, that there were some who said, he is a good man, and this is just the minority. But on the contrary, the vast majority are saying, he's a deceiver. He leads the multitudes away. And the word here for leading away is uh, planao. Looks like this in the Greek, planao. And it means to deceive. So they're calling him a deceiver. And what we need to recognize is these are the only options people really have about who Jesus was. This has been a standard approach in apologetics for years. It's called the Lord, liar, or lunatic argument. And that is that Jesus Christ claimed to be identical with God. He claimed to be the creator of the universe. He claimed to be one with God. And he claimed to be the one and only way to have a relationship with God. He made statements like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. He said, I and the Father are one. Jesus made some extraordinary claims. And as we have seen in the previous studies, Jesus did not leave any room for doubt as to what he meant. He said, you must believe in me if you're going to have eternal life. Now, people want to evade those claims, and what you'll usually find is people wanting to hide behind some sort of religious argument and say, well, I, I don't know, I, I just think Jesus was, was a good man. He had some nice things to say, and he, he challenged people, and he was a, a religious innovator and a moral innovator, and he just was, was the wrong man at the wrong time and was crucified because of that. But if, if we know anything at all about Jesus' life, we only know what's in the Scriptures. And what the Scriptures indicate is these phenomenal claims that he made, and either he's telling the truth or he's telling a lie. Those are the only options. And if Jesus is telling the truth, then he is who he claimed to be, or he is telling a lie, in which case he is one of the greatest charlatans and deceivers of all of human history. For he has said that if we believe in him... We will have eternal life, and we can never lose that life. And at the moment of faith alone in Him, we are identified with Him, and we go into the Father's hand, and we can never be snatched from the Father's hand. And if He's telling a lie, then millions and millions, hundreds of millions of people who have put their faith alone in Christ alone down through the last 2,000 years are all deceived. And instead of having eternal life in heaven... They will have either eternal life in a lake of fire or they will just die and there will be nothing. They will be annihilated at the point of death and have no afterlife whatsoever. So either Jesus is who he claims to be, the Lord of the universe, or he is the greatest deceiver of all times. And that is the point that John is making here. People were recognizing that even in Jesus' day. They understood the options, either accept him as Messiah or he is a deceiver, but there's no middle ground. There's no way to say, nobody's saying, well, he's a, he's a good, good rabbi. He's just a good teacher. He's, he certainly said some interesting things. There, there's no middle ground. The, the 
populace is polarized. Either he's the Messiah or he's not, and those are the only options that anyone has. Then we read in verse 13, Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. And here we see that nothing is more indicative of an enslaved population than those who fear the authorities. Now, before we get out of this section of confrontation, we're going to see the Pharisees make the ludicrous claim that they're absolutely free. And we will discover that there are four arenas of slavery at this time in Israel, and one of which is slavery to their religious system. Slavery to the law, and they're also under the domination of Rome, not to mention slavery to their own sin nature. And they are afraid, and this indicates the tremendous oppression and control that existed in the religious environment in Israel at this particular time. Now we see the beginnings of the confrontation start in the next five verses, verses 14 through 19. Here we're going to see Jesus suddenly appear in the temple. Remember Malachi 3? The Messiah would suddenly come into the temple. And so in the middle of this week-long feast, suddenly Jesus is in the crowd. Nobody saw him come. Nobody knew he was coming. Suddenly he's there and he is teaching. And people are reminded of the Malachi passage. In the midst of this, the Jews are going to challenge his credentials and he's going to throw the challenge back to them. Now, that's a very interesting technique that Jesus is using and so we want to analyze that strategy just a little bit. Verse 14. But when it was now the midst of the feast, so it's the third or fourth day into the festival, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The Jews, listen to their response, the Jews therefore were marveling, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? This is the Jewish religious leaders. How does he know so much about the scriptures, and how can he teach with such authority? He didn't go to any of our seminaries. See, the standard procedure was that you were identified at a young age for rabbinical training, and by the time you were 12 or 13, about the time of your bar mitzvah, you would enter into tutelage under a rabbi, and you would spend 10 or 15 years then studying intensely in one of the rabbinical schools. And Jesus had not gone to any of the rabbinical schools. And if you study the Mishnah, which is a collection of the authoritative statements of the rabbis from about this time, from roughly uh, 50 B.C. up through about 100 A.D., you'll see that the way they handle problems was they would pose a question, can you do this on the Sabbath? And then they would respond by saying, well, Rabbi Eliezer says this, and Rabbi Akiba says this, and Rabbi so-and-so says this, and then they would come to a conclusion. But it's all it's sort of a consensus-based thing. And today we are slipping into this same kind of pharisaical, rabbinical mentality. I heard it when I was in seminary. We were almost taught to handle exegesis this way, that you read through commentaries and MacArthur says this, Swindoll says this, so-and-so says that, Walvert says this, and you just cite these very, very, various authorities that disagree with each other, and when it's all over with, you're just left with some real mamby-pamby consensus of what the text might be saying, and there's still no clarity. 
And you hear that from so many Christians. They're, the people in the pews are so confused because of this. Nobody knows what the Scripture says anymore. And people say, well, my denomination says this, and I heard this pastor say that, and I heard that pastor say this. And the pastors don't know anymore because most of them can't think. And a lot of seminary professors aren't teaching students to think anymore. The way you handle passages is you look at it and you try to think logically. God does not eschew the use of reason and logic. And you say, well, if it means X, if X, then Y. And you develop your options. And then, well, if it means A, then it could mean B, C, or D. And you lay out your options and then you analyze each option and each result how that would impact other areas of theology and other areas of doctrine. And you work through it very rigorously and systematically, and nobody knows that. I've talked to seminary students who, in fact, I know one guy who almost finished a doctorate, and he didn't know how to do that. They don't teach you how to find out what the meaning of the passage is anymore. They just teach you to, to go back and try to figure out what all the different authorities said. And that's the same trap that Judaism fell into at the time of Christ, and nobody knew what the truth was anymore. And we're in that same dangerous scenario. So the Jews can't understand how Jesus has this kind of authority. They want to know, where did he study? Who were his teachers? What gives him the right to stand up in the public square and teach with this kind of authority? Because he didn't stand up and say, well, Rabbi so-and-so says... And Rabbi so-and-so said that. He just said, this is what God says. And he made it clear. Now look at how Jesus answers them in the next two verses. Jesus therefore answered them and said, my teaching. This is the Greek word, didache, which means doctrine. Now, see, Jesus wasn't afraid to use the word doctrine. We've gotten to where we're afraid to use that today, that, that somehow doctrine is just cold academic truth and doesn't have any real value for everyday life. And that's because we have bought into so many human viewpoint assumptions about the nature of truth. You have to learn some things academically before you can ever apply them. And we are to renovate our thinking, and that must precede the renovation of our life and our overt activity. But so many people don't want to think. They just want to come to church and have their emotions stimulated. They want to go home feeling warm and fuzzy like they've been stroked and and everything's going to be okay. And they don't want to have to to concentrate and think that, that we're falling apart internally and the church is becoming impotent in our society because they don't know doctrine anymore. Doctrine's become a bad word for a lot of people and they're afraid to even use it. But Jesus says, My doctrine is not mine, but him, but his who sent me. If any man is willing to do his will, that is the will of God the Father, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. So Jesus challenges their whole concept of the standard authorities and he claims that his doctrine comes directly from God the Father. And then he makes one of the most important statements in the Bible about how we learn things. Now, this is something you need to pay attention to. This is something that will challenge your thinking a little bit. This is called in philosophy epistemology. It's how you know what you know, the study of knowledge. How do you know truth? How do you really know what is true and what is, what is false? How do you come to know truth? Look at what Jesus says in verse 17. If any man is willing to do his will. 
This is a third class construction in the Greek, which means some will and some will not. And it focuses on positive volition. If any man is positive to doctrine, this is an orientation in your soul. Do you really want to know the truth or not? Now, there are a lot of people who are running around and they act like they're positive, but they're not. Just because you go to church and just because you want to read the Bible and just because you you have a lot of religious activity does not mean you want to know God at all. Sometimes you're just impressed with all your own religious activity and how it makes you feel. And the churches are full of people like that. What Jesus is saying is, in your soul, in your volition, if you really want to know the truth, you shall know the doctrine and whether it is true or not. The fundamental issue in knowledge, therefore, is not a moral issue. It's not an IQ issue. It's not an academic issue. It is a volitional issue. And that's the same point that Paul makes over in Romans. That the reason people do not know the truth is because at a foundational level they have rejected God and they don't want to know Him. Paul says it this way. He says they are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, when it became obvious to them, they rejected it and went negative and chose either atheism or religiosity as the option. So Jesus is saying to these very religious, very moral leaders, he says, if you were really positive, you would know the truth. But you're not positive. You are You've rejected the Old Testament. You don't understand it. You don't have a clue what Moses was teaching. And you don't have a, a, the first idea about what it takes to have a relationship with God. You're involved in all this religious activity. You're out here at all the feasts. And you're going through all the ritual. But you don't want to know God at all because your basic orientation is negative to doctrine. What a slap in the face to the Pharisees. No wonder they wanted to kill him. He further develops his thinking in verse 18 where he says, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. Now you see, Jesus understood how to do theology and how to think logically. First of all, he lays down the premise in verse 17 that the bottom line is volition. If you have positive volition, you will have knowledge. You will be able to discern truth from error. The basic issue is volition. And you will know whether I'm just generating this through my own autonomy, my own, this is my own ideas and my own opinions, or whether it has its source in God. And then in verse 18, he's going to draw the contrast. He's going to take it case by case. Case number one is the autonomous man. Case number two is going to be the person with humility who has positive volition. So he's going to start off with an example of the person who's negative, who rejects doctrine, and is seeking his own knowledge, his own way of truth. He says, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. This is always the way with autonomous man. He is set in negative volition. He is self-absorbed and he's operating on the arrogant skills of self-absorption and self-justification. And he is pursuing his own path of truth. He wants to determine what absolute truth is, and then come to God and say, God, you meet my concepts of what absolute truth is. How many times have you heard people start talking about how they, what they think about God? 
And they'll start saying, well, I think God is like this. and I can't believe God would ever do that. That just, that just wouldn't be like God. And just challenge them and say, well, where did you learn so much about God? What's your basis of authority for saying that? And most people just have their own subjective impressions of the way they think God ought to act. And then they want to impose those autonomous ideas that they've generated in the arrogance of their soul upon the Bible and upon God. And say, because God doesn't meet my idea of what God ought to be like, then He can't be God. So there's no God. And that's the way human viewpoint and arrogance operates. And Jesus said, he who speaks from himself, the person who is set in human viewpoint autonomy, is ultimately seeking his own glory. Human viewpoint always seeks to elevate man and make man the absolute standard, whether it's an individual or whether it is a collective group. In contrast, Jesus says, but he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, that is the person who is operating on positive volition, He is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Now, he is speaking here of himself. He said, he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, that's a reference to himself and his humanity and hypostatic union, that he is seeking the glory of God. That is his primary purpose. He says, he is true. And what I want you to notice here is how the the writer, how the Apostle John uses the word truth. This is the Greek word aletheia. And he reserves this word almost exclusively to God in the Gospel of John. Only God is truth. There's only a couple of, possible, couple of exceptions, but for the most part, John reserves the use of the word truth for God and God alone. So Jesus is saying here, I speak the truth because I am truth. He's going to make it more clear later on when he says, I am the truth. So Jesus asserts his own authority here in contrast to the crowd's assertion of authority, which we uh, read earlier. When they question him, how can this man lead us? They're basically asserting their own authority, their own, the, the, the value of their own educational system. But here Jesus responds by claiming absolute authority that he can speak the truth because he is truth, because he is the righteous one. He is challenging the facade. You always find this on college campuses and the high school classroom, the facade of intellectual open-mindedness. They're open to everything but the Bible. You can bring any fact you want to into the classroom, but if it's a fact that is derived at all from the Scripture, then you can't bring that in. So that's not open-mindedness at all because a truly objective person will evaluate all the data. But they're going to exclude a vast amount of data from the very inception. So Jesus challenges them in verses 19 down through 24. And listen to his argument. It's a very interesting strategy. They challenge him to produce his authority. But he doesn't specifically answer their challenge because it's based on human viewpoint concepts of truth and proof. Remember we saw this back in John 5. They said, basically, prove that you're the Son of God. Now, whenever you have somebody, you're witnessing to somebody, and they say, prove that this is true, what do you mean by proof, and what do you mean by truth? 
These are not value-neutral terms. Everybody has a different concept of when you talk about truth, what's the absolute criterion for truth? When you talk about proof, what is your final criterion for determining proof? What are your absolutes? And so Jesus is not going to cave into their pressure. You see, he never lets the person operating on human viewpoint determine his agenda. Instead, he ignores what they say, and he uses the same strategy he used in John 5. Rather than conforming to their concepts of truth and proof, which is the concept of autonomous man, he is going to challenge them, and he's going to show, look, I'm, instead of answering them, he's going to say, you can't even follow Moses, and I'm going to prove to you how inconsistent you are with the Old Testament and that you do not even understand what Moses taught. In other words, rather than trying to prove in the human viewpoint concept the truth of his position, he is going to show how they have completely invalidated their own concepts. He is going to go on the offensive instead of sitting on the defense. Verse 19, he said, Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law. Ugh. This must have rankled the Pharisees who prided themselves on how consistent they were in applying the Mosaic law. It says, didn't Moses give you the law and none of you carries out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Let's get to the real issues here. He's going to point out their motives and he's going to challenge their very thinking. Now, notice how the multitude responds. You're crazy! You must be demon-possessed. Nobody's out here trying to kill you. Who's seeking to kill you? See, they're caught up in self-deception. See, when you're involved in the arrogant skills, first there's self-absorption, then there's self-justification, and then there's self-deception, and you begin to become divorced from reality. And reality is always defined by the Word of God. So Jesus is going to try to drive them back to reality and to remind them of what happened a little over a year ago. And that visit to Jerusalem in John chapter 5, John doesn't name the feast. It could have been tabernacles a year earlier. It could have been another one. But it was at least a year ago. Jesus said, I did one deed and you marvel. I performed one miracle. I healed the man on the Sabbath. He was a cripple. He could hardly drag himself around, and I healed him completely so that he could get up and walk. Jesus goes back to the Old Testament. It's fascinating to see how Jesus uses the Scripture and his argumentation to destroy their argument. It says, on this account, Moses has given you circumcision. Now, in their, the legalists tended to, go, tended to identify circumcision with the Mosaic Law, but Jesus is accurate here. Circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. God gave the covenant to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, and every covenant has a sign. The sign of the Noahic covenant is the rainbow. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant is circumcision. What's the sign of the Mosaic covenant? It's the Sabbath. This is the issue. He healed on the Sabbath, and they're claiming he violated the law. Jesus said, on this account, Moses has given you circumcision, not because it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. In other words, you recognize that it's legitimate to circumcise a man, even if it's the Sabbath. So you're going to violate the Sabbath law for the purpose of circumcision. 
if, verse 23, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because I, am, I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? Now, it's instructive to go to the Mishnah here and to see how they wrangled about the laws related to the Sabbath. Because indeed, Moses recognized the principle that the Sabbath was made for man, as Jesus put it, not man for the Sabbath. So there were legitimate exceptions. The purpose of the Sabbath was just to rest in the provision of God. It taught grace. It taught the importance of faith and trust in God in the midst of life's difficulties that God would provide. And so on the Sabbath you rested. You didn't try to earn anything. You just relaxed in God's provision. And the Pharisees got all caught up in, well, what constitutes work? What is work? What isn't work? And listen to some of the things they say. This is from the Tractate Shabbat in the Mishnah in section 18.3. It says, They do not deliver the young of cattle on the festival, but they help out. In other words, there's a little bit of assistance there if somebody's going into labor. And they do deliver the young of a woman on the Sabbath. So if a woman was pregnant and she was getting ready to give birth, they, they would uh, get involved with that. They call a midwife for her from a distant place. Notice how they split hairs. And they violate the Sabbath on her account and they tie the umbilical cord. So you couldn't tie things and stop bleeding. If somebody were cut on the Sabbath, you couldn't apply pressure to that wound to stop the bleeding. They'd just bleed to death. They t- so they tie the umbilical cord. Rabbi Yose says, also, they cut it. And all things required... See, that's where they appeal to... Well, one rabbi says this. And all things required for circumcision do they perform on the Sabbath. Rabbi Eliezer says, if one did not bring a utensil that is used for circumcision on the eve of the Sabbath then he could bring it openly on the Sabbath. And in the time of danger, though, one covers it up in the presence of witnesses. That's in case somebody's there who may accuse you, then that's a time of danger, so you do it covertly. (laughs) Further did Rabbi Eliezer state, they cut wood to make coals to prepare an iron utensil for circumcision, so it's okay to sterilize the instruments. An operative principle did Rabbi Akiva state, any sort of labor, that is in connection with circumcision, which it is possible to do on the eve of the Sabbath, does not override... Sabbath. And that which it is not possible to do on the eve of the Sabbath does override the prohibitions of the Sabbath. In other words, if, if, if you can do it ahead of time, you have to do it ahead of time. But if you can't, then obviously you have to violate the prohibitions of the Sabbath. So they split hairs on every single detail trying to figure out how to apply these principles uh, to circumcise because uh, a male child was supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day after birth. So Jesus recognizes the fact that, look, your, his argument is this. You are willing to violate the Sabbath to heal one small member, to deal with this one small issue in relation to man, because circumcision was also recognized as a hygienic principle as well as a a scripture related to, to fulfillment of the law. 
And so Jesus recognizes it, says to them, you will do this on this one small issue. But when I come along and I heal the whole man, now you're going to get mad at me? And he's just pointing out the absolute fundamental inconsistency of their legalism and their interpretation of the Scriptures. And he concludes by saying, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. In other words, you're so confused and you're so distracted in all of this and you're so, you're so convoluted that you can't make a right decision because you don't have the correct interpretation of the Scriptures. You cannot judge unless you have an absolute standard of righteousness and that must come from the truth. And Jesus is saying, I am the truth and I'm the one who is in your very presence. So, of course, this relaxed all the tension because they were so grateful that he clarified things, right? No, he just seems to stir the pot. This is not the picture that so many religions paint of this meek, mild, and lowly Jesus. I mean, he's right there in the midst of an incredible hostile crowd, and he just stirs up the pot. Not for the sake of creating antagonism, not for the sake of causing anxiety. Now listen, some, sometimes, I've seen young believers get that way, where they want to get in arguments for the sake of argument. Don't ever do that. Jesus is not getting into an argument here for the sake of argument. He is doing this because He is bringing everything to a head in terms of His claim to be the Messiah and to make it abundantly clear, to give them more than enough opportunity to respond positively so that it becomes clear not only to their own generation but for all time and eternity that the leadership and the people in Jerusalem at this time had every opportunity and every evidence and every witness to the truth and they rejected it. It's their volition that is the issue. So the tension increases and the confrontation develops. Verses 25 down through 29. Therefore, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Is this not the man whom they're seeking to kill? And look, he's speaking publicly. And they're saying nothing to him. See, now the crowd's confused because he's having this confrontation with the religious leaders and they, they've heard, the rumors are out, that they want to kill Jesus, that there's a plot to, to take his life, that they're against him. And now it seems like in the midst of the multitude, they're having this dialogue with him in the public square. So they're confused. Are they for him or are they against him? Well, if he's out here like this and they're not arresting him, then they must be for him. So the crowds cannot figure out what the religious authorities want to do. And the religious authorities don't have the courage to arrest him in the midst of the crowd because he still has a measure of popularity. So in verse 26, they say, look, he's speaking publicly. They're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? In other words, they haven't made up their mind. How have they made up their mind? We're confused. However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, remember Malachi 3.1? He will come suddenly into the temple. However, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ, the Messiah, may come, no one knows where he is from. And look at Jesus' response in verse 28. Quadzo is the verb here. He cries out. He shouts. He raises his voice. You see the tension here. This is dramatic, people. He is in the midst of this crowd of probably 40, 50, 60,000 people out in the courtyard, this massive courtyard outside the temple. 
and he's just been engaged in this confrontation, and now you can just see him spread his arms out, and he raises his voice to make sure everybody hears what his claim is. And he uses sarcasm. He says, You know me? And you know where I'm from? Do you really? What makes you think you know all about me? But He who sent me, the Father who sent me is true, whom you do not know. And He's repeating this. He's walking around the temple, surrounded by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and all the people. And He's saying, you think you know where I come from, but you don't know me and you don't know the Father who sent me. You don't have a clue. And He is just directly challenging their whole religious system. And he makes the claim in verse 29, I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Oh, these are fighting words. Verse 30, They were seeking therefore to seize him and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. You see, this reminds us of what John said at the very beginning of this Gospel. In John 1, 10 through 12, this is what he says in the preface, foreshadowing this theme. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, that is the Jews, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in His name. The majority of the Jews rejected Him, but there were those who accepted His claims to Messiah. And they knew that belief, faith alone, was the key to eternal life. And that's how verse 31 begins. But many of the multitude, as they saw His challenge, they realized that they saw before their eyes prophecy fulfilled as the Messiah came suddenly into His temple And they believed in Him. And they said, When the Christ shall come, He will not perform more signs than those which this man did, will He? You see, they saw the truth. They saw the evidence. These were the ones who were positive. But those who were negative, who had already rejected God and had chosen the path of religion and the path of arrogance, when they saw the signs, when they saw all the evidence... It didn't convince them. Why? Because you see, facts aren't the issue. They had all the facts necessary. The issue is volition. And Jesus shows us here the importance of volition and the importance of positive volition first if you're ever going to understand biblical truth. Somebody asked me after the last hour, why is it that throughout so much of church history that people have not understood so much? And it's because of the issue of volition. So many are caught up in religiosity and arrogance that even though they're they're theologians, even though they're pastors, even though they're involved in tremendous activity, they're not positive. That's just a facade. The issue is, and only you can decide, are you really positive to God or are you just playing games like the Pharisees? with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for Your Word and for the fact that we have so much clear evidence that Jesus is exactly who He claimed to be. 
We thank you for the fantastic work that he did for us on our behalf on the cross, that there he died as a substitute for our sins, and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. And Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that is without hope, without faith, without eternal life, that they would take the opportunity right now to make that decision that would settle their eternal destiny. It's not an issue of how good they are. It's not an issue of church membership. The issue is their relationship to Jesus Christ. Scripture says, He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here that they would take this opportunity right now to settle their destiny. All they have to do is to tell you in the privacy of their soul that they accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. They are trusting Him and Him alone for eternal salvation. Father, help us to understand the things that we have learned to remember them as the Holy Spirit recalls them to our mind that we may apply them in the week to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.